I'd like to begin this evening's talk with a poem by David White. In this high place, it's as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the cold surface. Say the old prayer of love. And open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. There in the cold light, reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face. There's a story about the Buddha when he was a young boy, about six years old. He attended the spring plowing festival with his parents at that time in his life, who his parents who were the king and the queen in what is now Nepal at the foot of the Himalayan mountains, in this area where he was born and grew up. On this particular day of the festival, young Siddhartha was seated quietly under a tree, under a very sweet-smelling rose apple tree, it said, where he sat and watched his father. He watched his father and all of the other local nobles and all of the poor men alike, all together plowing the earth for this spring planting festival. He was sitting there, this young boy was sitting there very alert with this clear attention that children can often give to particular events, particularly if they're interested. He was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows. He was aware of the heat shimmering off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces of the oxen and the straining bodies of the men. He felt and saw what seemed like this senseless, plodding rhythm of hooves and cowbells rolling on and on and on amidst the shouts of the men. He clearly heard the songs, the beautiful songs of the birds. He also heard the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and pecked and devoured all the swarming insects and the grubs and the worms and the broken bodies of the mice that were left by the men and the oxen as they turned over the earth. All of this very obvious laboring devouring, struggling, suffering, dying, which was endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, the joy, the beauty of this spring festival day. All of this broke in on this young boy, Siddhartha. And in a sense, we could say, weighed heavily on his heart and his mind as he sat there alone under the tree taking all of this in and experiencing it deeply, 
and in his childlike way, intuitively reflecting on the scene that was taking place before him. It's said that as he silently sat there taking it all in, he suddenly entered into a profound experience of very deep concentration and insight. He entered into a profound experience of oneness. And in his young mind, a deep intuitive understanding was born out of this experience of oneness with all that was taking place that day at the festival. Many, many years later in his quest for liberation, as a young man, and after six years of very extreme, austere practices that didn't bring him the freedom that he was seeking, although he learned a lot from them. At one point, he remembered this scene from his childhood and this profound experience that he'd had that day at the festival. And it's said that with this memory, he became filled with energy and assureness and made a resolve to, again, sit quietly and to press forward in deep meditation until he actually did reach full understanding, until he really did reach the freedom that he was seeking. No one told the Buddha these truths. No one sort of came along and bestowed the truth upon him. No one gave it to him. No one touched him, and suddenly he was awakened. And his liberation, his enlightenment, certainly didn't come from anything that he read. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake, astonished. One of the basic tenets that early on attracted me to practice and that really continues to be a very lively aspect of it for me is this come see for yourself teaching. The basic tenet that this is a path of inquiry, it's a path of discovery, and that we fully participate in, that we fully experience for ourselves. We take responsibility for ourselves, we could say. It's a practice of responsibility, the practice of understanding and learning to respond, the ability to respond to life, to things, to life, just as it is, just as it truly is in its deepest sense, rather than reacting, to be able to see and be with whatever arises, whatever passes away to be able to respond just as it is. We don't manipulate, we don't fabricate things. We just pay attention. We pay attention to it as it all comes, sustains for however long, and as it goes on by. We pay attention with a very clear, fresh attention, even to the things that we think are so familiar to us. The heart of practice in this sense is what's been called, which you've probably heard many times, beginner's mind. A 
again and again and again, seeing fresh, new, without preconception, without concept, we could say. Again and again, the freshness, clarity of the not-knowing mind. And so, just as it was for Siddhartha Gautama, it's the same for us. It's really by the power of our attention and awareness, with great interest and energy, and really patiently taking the time to look deeply at our own experience of body, of mind, of heart, really patiently taking the time to develop a concentrated clarity of awareness. It's through this that we're able to see and to experience the truth, to see and experience the nature of things. This is what brings the deepest ease and contentment. This is what brings the deepest happiness. This is what's liberating. This is what brings a sense of freedom. This is what brings connection, understanding, and compassion with and for all that lives. This is our deepest and most expansive human possibility. And it's perfectly natural. Sairao Pandita used to say, probably still does say, this practice is about becoming a real human being. This practice is about becoming a real human being. There in the cold light, reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face. I think if we're really honest with ourselves. Most of us could maybe often, or at least sometimes, liken our mind uh, to a, a small storage closet. We're continually stuffing, filling it, stuffing things in, all kinds of things into it. All the conversations we have, telephone, face-to-face, email conversations, all the relational experiences that we have with others, all of our sensate experiences, the various media that we connect with, newspapers, radio, television, magazines, all of the entertainments that we engage in, films, books, catalogs, music, theater. We jam it all into this storage closet mind, we could say. And sometimes it's filled so full that we can barely open the door. Or maybe we're fearful, hesitant of opening the door for fear that everything will just tumble out uncontrollably. It's a lot to hold on to. And it's actually quite exhausting to keep it, to try to keep it. It's exhausting to save it all. What we really want is a rest, 
a deep rest. What we're really seeking is a rest for the mind, a rest for the heart, some ease of being. And so we enter into various ways of trying to get that. Some of the ways that I've mentioned, television, videos, music, movies, etc., going out for dinner, going shopping. But these habits don't really bring us a rest. They seem to be a need to uh, keep our sanity, we think. And yes, certainly they're a change in our routine. And we do begin to access, or at times we access some fresh energy for a few moments when we engage in these pastimes. But they really don't give us the deep rest, the deep ease of being that we're seeking. And actually even sleep doesn't really give us this true rest for the mind, true rest of the heart. The way to do this is what we're doing right here. To begin to train the mind to pay attention in the moment. This is really the road, we could say, the path to this rest, this deep inner sense of ease, of being. Training our mind, our heart, to be here in the present moment any present moment, without all of the mental commentary, training the mind, the heart to be relaxed, to be alert in this present moment. And I'm sure each of you have experienced this, at least for a few moments during this retreat, and know that it's very refreshing. One feels quite refreshed, quite bright, alive, awake, in that moment of immediate presence, in the present moment. And really, it's a matter of habit, we could say. There's the habit of being unaware, and there's the habit of being aware. And as we're doing here, we can develop, we can cultivate, this habit of being present, being mindfully present. And once we start to really be present in the moment, it's as though everything opens up. When we're mindful in the moment with really with what is, this immediate presence, it's very wakeful, it's very vivid. It's an alive moment. The Dharma, the Buddha Dharma, is about transforming the mind, transforming the heart. So this evening I'd like to spend some time exploring two particular aspects of practice that are primary factors in this process of transformation. Samadhi, which is usually translated as concentration, and sati, which is translated as mindfulness. We'll begin by exploring concentration. 
concentration itself is, we could say, a narrow focus, a one-pointed focus, kind of a laser-like attention into something. And I'm going to talk a little bit about mindfulness at this point, too. Mindful awareness, we could say, is wider. It's more panoramic in its nature, though at the same time it can be quite precise and minute in what it sees. So a simple way to begin to look at this with a very ordinary example that we've all engaged in, listening to music, really listening to music. This can be an experience as if one is absorbed into the music. T.S. Eliot had a really beautiful way of saying it. He said, music heard so deeply that it's not heard at all, but you are the music while the music lasts. This is the experience of a laser-like focus, a laser-like concentration, a tension that absorbs into the object. To know one is absorbed in the music is mindful awareness. So I hope you see the difference. To know that one is absorbed in the music is mindful awareness. When we're mindful, we're not aware only of what we're doing, but we may also be aware, for instance, of the feeling tone, the pleasant or the unpleasant tone of the experience. We might be aware of the emotions that are arising in relation to the experience. With mindfulness, the whole panorama of the colorations of our experience within us may come to be known. So looking a little bit more deeply into concentration. It's a process of gathering in, gathering together, we could say, all of the energy, the potential energy of the mind, which ordinarily is quite dispersed. It's kind of like we're reining in the mind from all of its myriad distractions. And we begin to focus it in order to see clearly. And we keep coming back again and again and again to the simple present, so that our energy isn't being used up, we could say, in unconscious ways. We practice simple presence, presence of mind, learning how to gather back this power of our mind. Concentration is really a great power of mind. Returning to this very moment, so that we're actually able to see what's taking place, what's actually going on. This is a <clears throat> quote from Yanagi, a Japanese philosopher and a teacher of the way of tea. He said, they saw. Before all else they saw, they were able to see. Ancient mysteries flew from this wellspring of seeing.
There are some wonderful classical metaphors that are used in Buddhist teachings to demonstrate this process of reigning in the mind and then opening up, we could say, into mindfulness. One of them is talking about the bees, the bee following up the scent of a flower. It dives towards the flower and it stops just above it, buzzing, kind of getting to know the flower before diving into it, before absorbing into it. Another metaphor that I particularly like because I've done this, uh, this particular activity, uh, making pottery on a potter's wheel. There's a lump of clay on a spinning potter's wheel. In the process of centering the lump of clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay and holds it there, staying there with a very, very strong, focused attention of mind and body. Staying, sustaining the attention, sustaining the energy. No distraction, we could say, as the clay is being centered on the potter's wheel. This concentrated, focused attention. Then the potter, with a continuing focus of attention, with one hand directly on the clay, holding it there very steadily, supporting it. The other hand sustaining contact on the clay, but moving up and down, back and forth on the clay as he informs or she informs this lump of clay into a pot and is being informed by the lump of clay at the same time. It's a relationship going on. This is like mindfulness, we could say. In the last metaphor that I like, these are very classical uh, metaphors that I enjoy. <laughs> the last one is a circle. And there's a compass pointing right in the very center of the circle, fixed into the center of the circle. That's concentration, metaphor for concentration. The pencil then revolves, or the, the point of the compass is stuck into the center of the circle. Then the pencil revolves around the center point. Again, a, a metaphor for mindfulness. Concentration and mindfulness. In this process of developing a concentrated attention and a mindful awareness, we learn, we practice aiming, we could say, aiming the attention, aiming the mind towards whatever the object is. I'm using the breath as an example. Aiming the attention towards the breath and sticking with it lightly, not in a contracted, tense way, but sticking with it lightly and observing the breath from this close, intimate proximity, kind of like the bee buzzing above the flower. And then touching into the center, like the potter's hand moving as it's informed by the clay and informing the clay as the pot forms, rubbing up against the breath, we could say, in intimate observation. So we bring the mind to the breath and we place it there, kind of like the compass rotating its attention 
bringing it closely around the breath and seeing it clearly, seeing the whole of it. And of course, this happens because we're interested. We have interest and energy. We make an effort. And we make a connection. Energies arouse to focus on the breath or whatever it is that we're giving our attention to. Energies arouse to experience it deeply, to see it clearly as it moves in and out of the body, the breath. It's as though the attention, the mind, connects with and sticks with the breath just long enough to know it, to know that in-breath or out-breath. And then it drops or it kind of falls into the, into the breath with the mind re- at that point usually quite still but very alert in that moment on the inhalation and the exhalation and seeing it then with a more refined, more detailed attention, mindful attention. This power of a focused attention, this power of concentration, kind of brings it all together. And it stimulates or it re-stimulates itself again and again and again. It re-stimulates the energy, it re-stimulates the effort that's needed for the next moment of focusing, for the next moment of investigating. And we begin to see the specific qualities, the particular qualities, for instance, of a breath. We begin to see the universal qualities of what's taking place in this process of breath happening or whatever phenomena we're looking at, we're connected to. And this very naturally follows with this focused attention that's directly into our experience. And we begin to actually experience the physical and the mental phenomena without preconcept. We experience it directly. We come to know the qualities, the characteristics, both the unique characteristics and the common characteristics, the universal, the shared characteristics of all phenomena. For instance, with breath, we begin to really know, to taste, to touch the movement of the breath, for instance. Pressure, tightness, fullness, heat, coolness, whatever it is. Vibration, roughness, smoothness. These things become apparent to us. And we begin to really connect directly and know the changing nature of every breath. It's arising. It's changing in, in itself, and it's passing the universal characteristics of breath or anything that we connect with, any experience that we connect with. It's quite natural, and it happens, we could say, on its own if we give, it, give our experience a focused, mindful attention. As our concentration, as our focused attention deepens, 
we begin to feel a kind of open, refreshed quality within ourselves. There's an experience of a purity, a clarity, and a calmness that begins to fill the mind and fill the body. And of course, this is quite a pleasant experience. It's also a great help in strengthening the mind. We practice with the breath as it rises and as it falls, as it begins and as it ends, as it's born and as it dies. And we begin to see it, connect with it immediately, directly, and know it. The mind strengthens in its ability to stay present and not attach itself to other things, but just with what is, whatever the focus of attention is. It learns we could say to be just where it is, to be pure, to be calm, to be clear. And it's quite refreshing when this happens. For this moment, in these moments, the mind isn't dispersed. It's just here, just present, clear, light, and calm. And this, as I mentioned, this concentrated mind feeds itself. The mind becomes nimble, light. And there's a, an interest, a delighted interest that starts to be more pervasive in what's actually happening, just what's happening. Many years ago, when I was uh, practicing actually here at IMS, at one point in my practice, I had to make a phone call to my son because there was a serious health problem happening with his girlfriend at the time. And uh, when we spoke, I was wanted to share my practice with him. I was having a, quite a deep experience of concentration and a very uh, bright and delighted interest in all that I, was going on and that I was seeing. So I told my son how amazing it was and how interesting it was to uh, see all that was going on in my mind, all kinds of things. His response to me was, oh, Mom, I'd rather watch television. I said, this is better than TV, but he didn't believe me. (laughs) And so as we settle into our practice with some depth of focus and our interest is established, our concentration and our investigative energy actually continues to develop and deepen. And we might begin to feel a kind of comfort within us, within our body, within our mind, within our heart. Our mind is able to observe the pleasant and the unpleasant experiences that come. The pleasant and the unpleasant sensations and states of mind that arise with some degree of peace, without any or at least not much aversion. There's an ease in the mind, even in the midst of difficulty, at times when 
the focus of attention, the concentrated clarity of attention begins to deepen. And so now moving into exploring mindfulness with a little bit of more depth. The Pali word, as you probably most of you know, the Pali word for mindfulness is sati. Sometimes it's translated as to remember. And I, I like that translation a lot. To remember, if you break that word down, to connect to reconnect. Very simple, actually, although not so easy. If we're connected, if we're really mindfully aware, truly present, even for just a few moments, that's actually a lot. Mindfulness, remembering. Its opposite is forgetfulness. We're mindful for a few moments, and then we forget. So from this perspective, we could say this practice is about remembering to remember. And I think for many of us, our habituated conditioning is to actually not remember. That's why we practice remembering, why we practice mindfulness, why we practice sati. Our habituated conditioning is to remain resting in our habits, to remain resting in a kind of inertia, the inertia of our habits. And so we've been drawn, for whatever reasons, each of us, to practice remembering. Someone once asked me and a few people that were together, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? a good question. What makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? Mindfulness meaning absolutely believing our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, our body, our mind, just as it is cultivating a very powerful, very direct, immediate awareness. So clear and so simple that we can hardly believe it at times. The truth arising in such a clear and simple way that it's maybe hard to believe sometimes. I think that probably many of us want our lives to be more, so to say, want our experiences to be ongoing, to be permanent, to be deeply fulfilling, to suit our imaginations, our expectations, our fantasies, our hopes, our dreams. And I think for most people, these are really the deepest, most heartfelt desires that we have. And so consequently, most of us spend a lot of our time and a lot of our energy trying to find this, trying to satisfy these deep desires. 
outside of ourself through external experiences, through trying to get this and that, trying to get him or her by doing this and doing that or going here and going there. We try to find this ongoing contentment, this ongoing happiness, this fulfillment that we're seeking in this constantly changing world of our senses. And through the myriad various relationships that keep changing on through our lives. And it's actually, as you may have begun to notice, it's just not possible. So we look, we look very closely. We come very close and we feel our experience directly. This is a practice of very deep intimacy. Intimacy, the direct connection with our immediate experience of body, of mind, of heart. It's really the deepest intimacy with our own experiences, which as practice deepens and opens out, it becomes an intimacy, really a profound intimacy with all beings, with all things. So the direction of mindfulness is to be aware. Be intimately aware of it, whatever it is in the moment. To see, to know what truly is. How it is in the present moment. And in this present moment. And in this present moment. Ongoing. And essentially, this is what every form of our practice leads to. So mindfulness, a paying of a kind of extraordinary attention, a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. Not the way we usually connect to our experience. Non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting. It's an orientation, it's a connection to the present moment that creates an openness, creates a receptivity. It's an orientation that makes room for spaciousness and calmness of heart, of mind. It's a relationship to the present moment's experience that allows clarity, that allows understanding, wisdom to arise, to just simply and naturally arise, which it inevitably does. We actually don't have to do anything to make it happen. The truth isn't very far away. In fact, it's not anywhere else. It's not far away at all. It's ever-present. It's immediately close. It's always and everywhere intimately right here, right now.
Each of us, of course, wants to be at ease, wants a pervasive kind of ease and happiness in our life. The Buddha talked about a kind of happiness, a kind of ease of being that's not our ordinary, everyday seeking and the connection that we get in our ordinary, everyday pleasure. He said that this depth, this pervasive depth of ease of well-being and happiness arises when we're mindful. And that's what we're doing. We're cultivating mindfulness. Mindfulness happens, we could say, when we really bring our attention to the present moment. And so we practice it over and over and over again. If we're not mindful, if we don't bring our attention into the present moment, what's happening is that we're, we're actually living at a distance from experience, we're actually living at a distance from life itself, which just keeps this cycle of conditioned habit patterns, conditioned reactions, going around and around and around, feeding and strengthening themselves. We're sort of on automatic, like a robot, kind of like our computers. You know, you push the button and out comes what's in there. When our buttons are pushed, out pops our conditioned habit patterns, our conditioned reactions. Without mindfulness, it's as though we're looking through a pair of binoculars that are unfocused, that are fuzzy. Our perspective, our perception is all blurry, it's all fuzzy. And we're seeing through the filters of all of our ideas, our preconceptions, our opinions, our judgments. We're seeing through the filters of seeming similar past experiences. There's an example that I like to use that, again, is a very ordinary example that we've all had. We meet a a new person that we've never seen before. Without mindfulness, we don't see who they are. We don't actually see them. We see them maybe in relationship to what we're thinking about them in the moment that we meet them. Because as we know, lots of thoughts come up when we first meet somebody. We might feel attracted to them, so we see them in the filter of those thoughts. Or we find maybe there's aversion to them. We see them through the filter of those thoughts. We might see them about in relationship to what we want from them, what we hope we get from them, or what we don't want from them, what we hope we don't get from them. Or we might see them in relationship to the fact that they remind us of somebody else. And so we see them through that filter. We're really not experiencing this person that we've just met, never seen before, in themselves. So, We could say that without mindfulness, everything that we perceive is like this. Everything that we see, eat, hear, touch, smell, taste, think, it's immediately interpreted back to us in conformity with our habitual thoughts. 
our habitual ways of experiencing if we're not mindful. Our practice is about bringing everything into a very clear, sharp focus to really see things as they are, as though for the very first time. And as Krishnamurti says, moving from innocence to innocence. One of my grandsons has really um, been a wonderful teacher for me in this this innocence-to-innocence approach. A few years ago, he was... uh, we were walking, my daughter-in-law and I were walking outside with him, and he picked up a pine cone. And it was the first pine cone he ever saw in his life. And he looked at it, he smelled it, he put it up to his ear, he stuck his tongue on it to taste it, he poked at it with his fingers, he turned it every way that he could to look at it. This boy, young boy, with a mind that was fresh, a heart that was fresh, for the first time seeing a pine cone. My daughter-in-law and I very um, dutifully told him the name. We said pine cone. And he kind of looked at us quizzically and dutifully repeated pine cone and then went back to his investigation. He didn't really care about the word. He wanted to see, what is this? What is this? This is a state of mind we can actually learn to bring into our life. We can learn or we can relearn to do this without preconception. This moment, just as it is, is actually transformative. It transforms the whole context of our life. This is from T.S. Eliot. We shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And so we pay attention to a whole range of experiences, things that we normally do very mechanically every day, breathing, walking, eating. We pay attention to things that are pleasant, that are easy to pay attention to. We pay attention to things that are unpleasant, things that are more difficult to experience and more difficult to pay attention to. We really open to all of it in our practice, all that we can know, not leaving any parts out. The very stuff of our lives is our path to liberation. It's not the attitude of, well, if I really, if I wasn't so restless, then I could really pay attention. If I wasn't feeling anger so much, I could really pay attention. If I wasn't sick, if I, if I felt better, I could, I could do the practice. I could be mindful. If I wasn't so caught up in being attracted to beautiful things, then I could really pay attention. It's really the stuff of our lives that is our path to liberation. What, what arises? What comes into the mind? What the experiences in the body are? That's our path. 
And in this process, we have the possibility of letting go of the various myths, the various stories that we have about ourselves, that we hold in our closet of our mind, that we've stuffed in there and held onto and saved. All the various beliefs that we have about ourselves, for instance, the things that we think we're capable of or that we're not capable of, how we define ourselves, how we recreate our self over and over again. We have the opportunity to let go, to relinquish the various beliefs we have about our bodies, our minds, our emotions, beliefs that we've really held on to, that we stuffed into this closet of our mind. We have the opportunity to really simply pay attention to our experience, just as it is in this moment. And it's so simple, really. Though, again, as we all know, it's not so easy. And so we, we practice. We practice concentration in order to build up and support mindfulness. We practice mindfulness in order to build up and support concentration. Mindfulness is a seed, we could say. Mindfulness offers us a life of awareness. The presence of mindfulness actually means the presence of life. Mindfulness is an aspect of the sweet fruit of our practice. It frees us from forgetfulness. It frees us from dispersion. And it makes it actually possible for us to live life really fully in each moment. Mindfulness enables us to see the truth and to live the truth, to see the way it is and to live according to the way it is. Sometimes I think of mindfulness as magic. Although not at all like the magician's magic, which creates illusion and then pulls us into this illusion, this delusion. The magic of mindfulness takes us out of illusion. It takes us out of delusion. It takes us directly into reality. As a child, one of my great fascinations, one of my great interests was in magic tricks. And for a number of years, um, I always wanted magic tricks to be given as a gift for my birthday. And I became quite adept, actually, at performing magic. So adept that um, we, when we had our neighborhood fair for uh, a number of years, I was asked to be the magician in the fair. And in retrospect, in thinking about this, I've really come to understand that what I really wanted to see was how it worked, how this illusion worked. And then I found practice, which 
really began to show me how the illusion worked. In this high place, it's as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the cold surface. Say the old prayer of love. And open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. There in the cold snow, reflecting there in the cold light, reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face. I'd like to close the talk with a very short, roomy instruction, poem, but an instruction from Rumi. This was given to me uh, quite a number of years ago by a Buddhist nun. Don't try to be the sun. Be a dust moat. Lunar moth. Love the candle. Taste your life. Put your shoes on upside down. for a moment. Thank you for listening to the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.